Hello, everybody. We are about to embark on the second episode of the Minority of One podcast. Now, there are a few things that I'm going to be covering in this episode, but one of the things that I would like to talk about, and the thing that I'm going to start off by talking about, is the 2020 congressional races. We talked about the presidential race in the in the last episode, but I'd like to talk here about the congressional races. So it was an interesting case in which both sides sort of attempted to claim that the congressional races had worked out well for them. So Republican, many Republicans insisted that Democrats had done very badly, quote unquote, down ballot, you know, meaning, uh, in the House and Senate races. And they base this on the fact that Democrats sort of underperformed relative to expectations. The uh, consensus, or the sort of uh, common prediction, the consensus among many political analysts, was that in addition to Joe Biden defeating Donald Trump, Democrats were set to expand their majority in the House and regain a majority in the Senate. Now, this isn't quite what took place. Uh, Obviously, what we ended up with was that Democrats actually lost House seats, maintained a a pretty slim majority in the House, and initially it looked like Republicans were going to keep the Senate, although as we now see with the Georgia Senate races, in fact, Democrats ended up with a 50-50 tie which, given the fact that the vice president, Kamala Harris, is a Democrat, that means, of course, that Democrats do effectively control the Senate. But the the expectation was that they would have an outright majority. And that is, of course, not what came to pass. Now, I do think one thing that sort of got lost in the shuffle was I felt that Republicans were sort of crowing, you know, and uh, basically acting like they had actually won control of the House. And of course, they didn't win control of the House. Democrats kept control of it, even if their majority was smaller. Uh, And so I think that that's something that, you know, when people say, well, this thing killed Democrats down ballot, or this shows that aside from Biden, Democrats aren't very popular, I think it does have to be understood that Democrats did, in fact, keep control of the House of Representatives. You know, it seems to me that in order for the election to go well for Republicans, Republicans would have actually had to retake control of the House. And many of these sort of post-mortems about Democrats underperforming were sort of written or, or spoken about prior to Democrats effectively regaining control of the United States Senate. Now, I do think that there are certain things that Democrats could have sort of uh, done differently to possibly have done better in the House and Senate races. Uh, I would say that with regard to the House of Representatives, there is sort of an ongoing question as to whether or not the rhetoric of sort of, quote unquote, defund the police, as to whether or not that hurt Democrats down ballot. Now, James Clyburn, uh, the South Carolina representative, was being interviewed, I believe, the actual the day that Biden was declared the winner of the election. And he said that he felt that the sort of rhetoric around about, you know, defund the police, that that had severely damaged Democrats in a lot of congressional races. 
the there were also of course rebuttals that were made to that but i do think that it's it's kind of powerful that clyburn is somebody who in his younger days was actually arrested by police officers during a civil rights demonstration but nonetheless he does feel that that sort of defund the police rhetoric is damaging to democrats in congressional races uh now one of the things that sort of gets brought up is that Democrats such as AOC and uh, Cory Bush, who are advocates of defunding the police, did well in the election, and that the candidates who uh, ended up losing, or I should say the uh, incumbents in certain cases, and candidates who ended up losing their House races were largely sort of centrist Democrats. And that the argument goes that since the centrists were largely the ones that lost, that this means that the defunding the police rhetoric did not damage Democrats. Uh, now, I think one of the key problems here is that you have to look at the districts that these candidates are running in. You don't have a lot of cases of very, very liberal or left-wing Democrats running in what are essentially swing districts. That, that's just not something that you see a lot. Most of these very left-wing Democrats, like AOC, are running in these kind of deep blue districts, whereas the centrist, the more sort of centrist Democrats are often running in the swing districts. And so trying to say that this kind of defund the police rhetoric didn't hurt the Democrats because the Democrats who were saying it did well in their elections and the Democrats who weren't advocating defunding the police didn't do as well, I think that the, that kind of argument really sort of ignores what kind of districts centrist Democrats on the one hand and very left-wing Democrats on the other hand are running in. Now, one of the key exceptions to this is that Katie Porter is a pretty hard left Democrat, and she actually uh, does represent a, a pretty sort of swing district, uh, basically Orange County. Uh, and she did win by unseating a conservative Republican. But Katie Porter is really the exception rather than the rule. With most of these, you know, very left-wing Democrats, they are running in districts where almost any Democrat could win. You know, I remember that Nancy Pelosi got a lot of flack for basically saying that a glass of water could have won AOC's district if it was registered as a Democrat. But But the funny thing about that is that a lot of sort of diehard AOC supporters were making the same argument because I remember that when AOC primaried Joe Crowley, uh, the Democrat who had previously served in her House seat, I was concerned that because of just how far left AOC was, it might tip the election to a Republican. And the argument that was made is that the district that she represents is so deep blue that any Democrat could win it, and that the primary is the true election. So, in a sense, Nancy Pelosi and some of the more kind of hardline AOC supporters were kind of saying the same thing, just Pelosi was saying it perhaps in a meaner kind of way. Uh, I do think that, sort of broadly speaking, that the defund the police rhetoric did hurt Democrats for the simple reason that it is a pretty unpopular political slogan. It does not poll well typically with white voters. It does not poll well typically with non-white voters. And but besides his genuine, what are probably his genuine views on it, there is a reason that Joe Biden sort of avoided that slogan like the plague. 
Uh, I think more kind of broadly speaking, I would say that one of the reasons that Democrats didn't do as well down ballot is that there is sort of a natural, uh, at least in the House, that there is sort of a natural tendency for voters to want to change, particularly if Congress hasn't accomplished that much. So, you know, in uh, 2018, voters uh, uh, basically gave us kind of a blue wave, and Democrats sort of won the House back with flying colors. And in the end, Democrats weren't able to pass that much legislation because the Senate was controlled by Republicans, uh, Donald Trump was the president, and the Democrats were, were sort of very divided between the different factions. And so I think a lot of voters kind of um, soured on Democrats in Congress, just like voters had previously soured on Republicans in Congress. And, you know, I mean, you can just, I mean, that's sort of the cycle. I would say that with the Senate... There's uh, there were a couple of factors at play with why Democrats, even though they did, uh, even though they did well enough to essentially take back the Senate, why Democrats didn't get the outright majority that many were predicting they would. First of all, the Senate map is simply a tough map for Democrats to win, and the reason for that it, it really has to do with a, a couple of things. First of all, if you look at the states that vote Democrat. Democrats tend to do better, for the most part, in more heavily populated states, but Republicans generally win more states in presidential elections. So let's look at the 2020 presidential election to illustrate this. In 2020, Joe Biden and Donald Trump won the exact same number of states, 25 apiece, but Joe Biden got 74 more electoral votes than Trump did. How is that possible? Well, the reason is that in general, the states that voted for Biden, with the exceptions of certain states like Texas and Florida, the states that voted for Biden tended to have larger populations, and the states that voted for Trump, on average, tended to have smaller populations. Now, in the Senate, as opposed to the Electoral College and the House, in the Senate, each state gets equal representation. And so what that means is that for, the, for purposes of who has the majority in the Senate, it doesn't matter who got more votes nationwide. What matters is who got what votes within each state. Uh, and the Electoral College is like that to an extent, obviously, because you can win the popular vote and still lose the Electoral College. But the Electoral College does sort of apportion representation to states based on population size, which the Senate does not do. Now, one of the reasons why in the Obama era... Democrats had an easier time uh, gaining control of the Senate at certain points, you know, de or Obama and Bush era. So, you know, of course, uh, under Bush, Democrats took the Senate in 2006, and they maintained it for the better part of the Obama administration until the 2014 midterms. And a key reason for that is that at that time, ticket splitting was a lot more common. Now, ticket splitting refers to when uh, a, a, a significant number, a statistically significant number of voters vote for one party for one race and another party for another race in the same election. So an example of that would be, historically speaking, you know, if you want to go back to, you know, 1960s, 70s, 80s, it was common for a lot of voters in the South to vote for sort of conservative, old guard, segregationist Democrats for Senate and House races. 
and conservative Republicans for presidential races. And if you shifted to states up north, uh, in places like Massachusetts, you would often see voters uh, vote to re-elect liberal Republican senators and representatives, but Democratic presidential candidates. Uh, and that was something that that ticket-splitting phenomena was something that persisted into the Bush and at least the early Obama eras. So, for example, uh, at one point during that time, you had North Dakota, which is a deep red state that Republican presidential candidates always win. You had North Dakota actually electing Democratic senators, uh, and that's something that you just don't see anymore uh, in North Dakota. You know, now North Dakota has two Republican senators, and it's very unlikely that that's going to switch back anytime soon. Uh, now, what that means in practical terms is that when a state votes Republican in a presidential election, it usually votes Republican in the House and Senate races. Now, unfortunately, one of the really the most notable exception to this is one which favors Republicans, and that exception is Maine. So Maine was one of these states that Democrats were expected to essentially flip in the Senate uh, because Maine, so Maine has gone uh, for every Democratic presidential candidate from Bill Clinton in 92 through Joe Biden in 2020. The last Republican presidential candidate to win the state of Maine was George Bush Sr. in 1988. But nonetheless, uh, Susan Collins, uh, who is sort of a centrist Republican senator, has consistently done very well in Senate races in Maine. Uh, back in 2008, she was elected, uh, re-elected overwhelmingly, and Barack Obama was elected in the state of Maine overwhelmingly. So you had a large number of residents who voted for both Obama and Collins. Now, Collins did not, did not support Trump in 2016 or 2020, but she was significantly tied to the Trump administration in various ways. So the two most significant ways were she voted for Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court, and she voted against removing Trump from office in 2019. And so the feeling was that Collins was likely to lose her seat in 2020. Had she lost that seat and had all the other Senate races gone the same way, Democrats would have a majority now. But Maine was the really the one state to have a significant amount of ticket splitting between the, uh, w specifically with the presidential election and the Senate election. And I think one of the reasons for that is that while Collins it, it has a lot of votes that I would consider to be bad votes, she also did a pretty good job of distancing herself from Trump despite the votes on Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, removing Trump from office. So first of all, uh, she supports same-sex marriage. She has since 2014, so she's pretty late to the party, but she does support it. She's pro-choice. Uh, she was on record opposing Trump's ban on trans people in the military. She was, I believe, the only incumbent Republican running for re-election uh, who did not support Trump in 2020. Uh, she voted against confirming Amy Coney Barrett like a week before she was on the ballot. Uh, and relative, really for a Republican senator, she's about as woke on race issues as you're going to get for a Republican senator in this day and age. Uh, for example, she supported affirmative action. Uh, she has talked about sort of racial disparities in rates of COVID. 
uh, she was critical of Trump's comments telling American-born members of the squad, to, as well as Ilhan Omar, to go back where they, quote-unquote, to the countries they came from or whatever the hell it was that Trump said, you know, remember where he basically told four women, three of whom had been born in the United States, but all of whom were not white, to return to their supposed countries of, of origin, which I assume included New York City, Detroit, and Cincinnati, you know, the one in Ohio. Uh, so Collins was able to successfully sort of separate herself from Donald Trump. Uh, one thing, though, about Collins that's really sort of changed my opinion about her. I always had some amount of respect for Susan Collins. I have essentially lost it at this point for this reason. Throughout the 2020 election, Susan Collins was a co-sponsor of the Equality Act, you know, which would essentially add LGBT Americans to federal civil rights laws. Now, Maine is a state that, relatively speaking, skews pretty liberal on LGBT rights issues as well as civil rights issues generally. But after Susan Collins won re-election, she withdrew her sponsorship of the Equality Act. Uh, so I think that really sort of shows that Susan Collins really kind of played a lot of voters in the state of Maine. Uh, and But unfortunately, she's uh, not going to be up for re-election again until 2026. And Maine is really the only blue state, really the only like solid blue state left with an incumbent Republican senator that Democrats could potentially get out in order to flip the seat. I'm not counting Wisconsin and Pennsylvania here because Wisconsin and Pennsylvania are blue leaning states, but Trump did win them in 2016. So I would consider them to be left sort of left leaning, blue leaning swing states rather than solid blue states the way that Maine is. Uh, so now I want to sort of turn my attention to Georgia, uh, because Georgia is a state, really the only state that I got both the presidential election and the Senate elections wrong in my predictions, because I predicted that uh, Republicans would win, would win the state of Georgia in the presidential election and in the Senate elections. And I do sort of liken it to an episode of my favorite show, Monk, where Monk's therapist is completely incapable of relating to or reasoning with his own son because he's just sort of too close to the problem. Uh, and I think I was sort of, as somebody who's lived in Georgia all my life, I think that I may have been sort of too close to the, uh, too close almost, and was it was sort of clouding my judgment. So I, I think that I had become so well acquainted with just how much racism, homophobia, sexism, transphobia there is in the state. And I had seen just too many cases where people thought that Democrats were going to win the state of Georgia and then Democrats ended up losing sometimes pretty badly. I think I had just seen sort of too many cases of that to really see it, to really see Democrats being able to win. And I was particularly pessimistic about the candidacy of Raphael Warnock because the 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 basic fact is that if you look at every every election in which a black senator has been popularly elected uh, because it used to be that back in the 1800s uh, US senators were elected by the legislatures uh, but if you look at every case in which a black US senator has won the popular vote almost all of these elections have been in liberal northern states uh, the there have been two cases, sorry, uh, yeah, two cases in Illinois, one in Massachusetts, one in New Jersey, one in California. 
Now, the only black U.S. senator to be popularly elected in the South is Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. And the exception kind of proves the rule here uh, for a couple of reasons. So, first of all, Tim Scott had to essentially swallow a massive amount of crap to get where he was or get where he is today in the South Carolina Republican primary. Uh, To give you just one example, uh, he actually served on the final re-election campaign for South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond in 1996. Strom Thurmond, of course, had been infamous for defending segregation for decades, but Tim Scott, in order to sort of get his foot in the door in South Carolina politics, had to throw in with Strom Thurmond. There was also a tendency, uh, once Tim Scott's career sort of took off at sort of the local and state level, there was a tendency for Scott to essentially fall back in line whenever he would briefly go off script when it came to race issues. And when I say off script, I mean sort of departing from the sort of right-wing line on issues of race. So I want to quote uh, an article from a, a Kansas City paper. Quote, Running in a predominantly black district, This is in 1996. Scott took a stand on the most racially charged issue of the day and supported removing the Confederate flag from above the State House dome, according to news accounts at the time. Four years later, Democratic South Carolina Representative Leon Stravrinakis, who sat with Scott on the Charleston City Council, said Scott promised to back his measure, calling on legislators to lower the Confederate flag. But when the resolution came before the council, Scott joined other Republicans in voting to table it, and the measure died. In 2002, Stravrinakis said Scott pledged to support another controversial bill tied to race, requiring that sheriff's deputies write down the race of each driver they pulled over and record the reason for the stop. Racial profiling is real, Scott told other council members at a May 16, 2002 session. It's not the rule, but is a consistent and pervasive problem in this country. Stravernakis said Scott became emotional over dinner one night as he described the times he'd been unfairly stopped by police. Yet Scott failed to back Stravernakis's racial profiling measure when the council took it up and it too died. So, and, and I will just, uh, th- that's the end of the quote, but I will also just add that Tim Scott's police reform bill, which he is criticizing Democrats for not supporting over their own bill, does not directly address racial profiling, which the Democrats' bill does. Uh, And and that is sort of a common pattern with Scott, which is that he will kind of go off script uh, a little bit and talk about how he has been racially profiled repeatedly by cops. But whenever the possibility comes up of actually banning police from racially profiling, then Tim Scott sort of falls back into line. And so essentially, that's if, if Tim Scott didn't really sort of hew to the conservative line on race, it is unlikely that he would have gotten elected as a U.S. senator in South Carolina. Now, the other reason that Scott uh, was, was able to become a U.S. senator in South Carolina is that he was able to essentially avoid the a real Republican primary. And traditionally, a normal Republican primary is sort of a political graveyard for black conservative candidates in the South, because 
when white Southern Republican voters have the option of a black conservative candidate or a white conservative candidate, they typically will go for the white conservative candidate. As Herman Cain found out years back when he tried to run in a uh, Georgia Republican primary for the Senate. Uh, but what happened with Scott was he was actually appointed to, by the governor to fill a vacant seat. So he was able to sort of leapfrog over the typical primary. When he was up for re-election, he did face one primary challenger. But the primary challenger in question was so obscure, I can't even remember his name off the top of my head. I couldn't find a picture of him, so I'm not actually sure that he's white. Uh, I'm not sure if he's white, black, Asian American, because I can't find I can't even find a picture of this guy. Uh, there was an article I read where they were saying that at the time of the article, he didn't even have a current working phone number that they could find. Uh, he had been arrested at one point. Now, despite how obscure this one primary challenger was, he actually got about 10% of the Republican primary vote against Tim Scott. Uh, and keep in mind that candidates like Jeb Bush and Martin O'Malley, who were former state governors, those guys got a fraction of that in the 2016 Democratic and Republican presidential primary. So this does suggest that if, in fact, the candidate was white, which, again, he's so obscure I can't figure that out, that does suggest that there, were a, there was a pretty significant chunk of white South Carolina Republicans who supported him against Scott specifically for that reason. But suffice to say that Tim Scott has never had to face the sort of st a standard Senate primary. And had he had to face that, he likely would not have gotten elected. So based on all of that, I found it very unlikely that a Southern state like Georgia was going to elect, in a popular vote, in a normal election, was going to elect a black U.S. senator. And, you know, I mean, you heard people say, you know, that's so offensive to the South to say that a black Senate candidate couldn't win there. And, you know, maybe I maybe I was wrong, but I don't think it's offensive to the South when if you've had one popularly elected black senator in the South ever, despite the very large black population in the South, and when you have that candidate getting elected under such unusual circumstances, it's not crazy to think that that would be difficult to duplicate. Now, one of the key reasons that uh, that Raphael Warnock was able to win is the fact that because of how the demographics of Georgia are, you don't need to win as much white vote in a state like Georgia as you do in many other states in the country. Uh, and that's not to take anything away from Raphael Warnock's win, because Raphael Warnock's win was historic. He earned it. He worked very hard for that win. But he was able to, he and Ossoff were both able to win their Senate seats with a relatively small percentage of the white vote. And, and also, that's not to take anything away from the significant chunk of white voters who did vote for those candidates. But it is to say that I haven't, I don't know if they're, I don't know if they've done the exact numbers, but it, but Loeffler and Purdue, the Republican candidates, I would estimate off the top of my head, probably, probably got at least two thirds of the white vote. I mean, Donald Trump got about 70% of the white vote in Georgia. But because Georgia is such a diverse state, you don't need as much of the white vote to win as you would in a state like Massachusetts. Uh, I think back to the case of uh, Edward Brooke, uh, because Edward Brooke was the first ever popularly elected black U.S. senator. He was elected in Massachusetts in 1966. Now, the consensus is that Brooke actually won with the majority of the white vote. Now, 
had he gotten the percentage of the white vote that Warnock got, he would not have won because that's what the demographics of Massachusetts in the 60s were. Uh, so the Georgia the the Georgia Senate races were certainly something that I was pleasantly surprised by. I'm very happy that Warnock and Ossoff won. I'm very proud of my state for electing them, but it was certainly something that ca- caught me off guard. I would now like to turn my attention to the sentencing of convicted murderer Officer Derek Chauvin, oh, no, I'm sorry, I should say former Officer Derek Chauvin, fired Officer Derek Chauvin, for the murder of George Floyd. Now, the sentencing will take place on June 25th. The prosecution is seeking a sentence of 30 years. Minnesota sentencing guidelines recommend a term of roughly 10 to 15 years for second-degree murder, I guess, if the person doesn't have a prior criminal history, or I should say criminal record. Uh, And Derek Chauvin's lawyer is asking that he get off with probation. Good luck with that, of course, I'm being sarcastic, but I don't don't think he's getting probation. Uh, Now, I would like to sort of offer my thoughts on what I think an appropriate sentence would look like and why. In my view, the 30 years that the prosecution is asking for is pretty reasonable. I actually, 30 years is something that I had thought, I had actually thought of that specific number as a pretty reasonable sentence that was proportionate to Derek Chauvin's crimes. Uh, Now, it is worth noting that under Minnesota state law, Chauvin is eligible for as much as 40 years in prison. So the prosecution is not asking for as stiff of a sentence as they could be. Uh, and that sort of is in line with what uh, Keith Ellison, the state attorney general and sort of the head prosecutor for the case, said during an interview, uh, where he said, you know, he didn't want the judge to go too low or too high. Uh, so I think that there are a couple of, re- and it is worth noting that there were a number of aggravating factors, uh, such as the fact that the murder was committed in front of a young child, that the judge agreed with the prosecution on. Uh, and these aggravating factors could be used as a reason for a longer sentence. Now, I think that in order to look at why I think that 30 years is an appropriate sentence, one of the things we have to look at is whether Derek Chauvin should have been convicted of second-degree murder. Because there was definitely, there was a segment of the population that included some reasonable people who felt that he should have been convicted of manslaughter and possibly third-degree murder, but not second-degree murder. And my reason for why I think that he should have been convicted of second-degree murder is this. It is simply not plausible, in my view, with the evidence that we have, to say that Derek Chauvin was not attempting to kill George Floyd. So I think one thing that we have to consider here is this was not a case, you know, as, as horrible as the Eric Garner situation in New York City back in 2014 was, this was not a situation where somebody applied, let's say, a headlock or a standard chokehold for a short period of time, and a person was in ill health, and they died from it. Uh, and that's an oversimplification of the Garner case, but that is, th- th- that's sort of what happened 
in that, what I would consider to have been a manslaughter case. Now, in the Eric Garner case, the appropriate thing that the officer involved, really, honestly, multiple officers on the scene probably should, but certainly the officer that put him in that chokehold, headlock, whatever you want to call it, because even in sort of the martial arts community, which I consider myself a member of, there was disagreement about what exactly the hold was. But in the Garner case, the officer that applied that hold, in my view, should have been convicted of manslaughter. And it is a travesty that he was not indicted or convicted of anything. But in the Garner case, it seems to me that the officer was not actively trying to kill Garner. And the hold that he put him in, while it was not, while it was obviously not safe and while it was not at all proportionate to the very low level of threat that Garner posed, it is still a situation, in my view, where it was... It was unlikely to have resulted in someone's death. It was it was a needlessly risky maneuver that was not necessary given the situation. But I don't think the officer in that case was uh, was attempting to kill Garner, and therefore I think that manslaughter, which is a common charge when somebody acts in a very needlessly reckless way that results in someone's death, I think that manslaughter would have been the appropriate conviction there. But this is not that because in the Chauvin case you have a situation where. An officer, after somebody is already handcuffed, proceeds to put their knee on his neck for almost nine and a half minutes. They continue to do this as the man is saying repeatedly that he can't breathe. And they maintain their that position. They maintain their knee on his neck after he goes unconscious. Remember, Chauvin, not only did he ignore Floyd's uh, repeatedly saying that he couldn't breathe, but he also maintained this very dangerous position for minutes after Floyd went unconscious. And, as I said, Floyd was handcuffed the entire time. Now, I simply don't see any kind of scenario where somebody does this and doesn't think that what they're doing is likely to result in somebody's death, particularly if the person is repeatedly saying they can't breathe. Uh, so that, so I think first of all, when we look about when we talk about intent, it, it it is clear to me that Chauvin, at the very least, didn't care at all if he killed Floyd and knew that his actions were likely to kill Floyd. In my view, he really comes off like he is actively attempting to murder Floyd. That, that's really what I think happened. In the case of Floyd, you have a guy who's handcuffed. He is not, he, he's not acting violent, which Garner, Garner was not acting violently either. But not, Garner was not acting violently either. But Floyd, in this case, was on his stomach, handcuffs behind his back. There were multiple officers present. Uh, which there were with the Garner case also, but there were multiple officers present. There's simply no way that Chauvin felt that he was in any level of danger significant enough to warrant that level of force. There is also no way that Chauvin could not have known that his actions were likely to result in Floyd's death. Uh, And that's something that, you know, I think that that's something that is very significant to this case. And you have Floyd repeatedly saying that he cannot breathe. So in my view, it, based, on, based on that information, it's very clear to me that Chauvin probably was actively trying to kill Floyd and at the very least didn't care if he did kill Floyd. Now, this is something that is very significant when we, or there's something else here that's very significant when we talk about second degree murder. 
So second-degree murder typically refers to murder that is sort of committed kind of in the heat of the moment, so to speak. First-degree murder is something that's very premeditated, very planned out. The sort of textbook case that you hear about as sort of an example of second-degree murder a lot of the time is sort of the crime of passion, where let's say a guy comes home, he's got a gun on him for whatever reason, but he's not planning to use it when he goes in the door. He finds his wife uh, having an affair with another man, and he shoots them. Now, that is sort of the textbook case of second-degree murder. Um, Now, in, in many cases like that, as I understand it, the murder, the sort of the decision to commit the murder and the entire murder is all committed in maybe a matter of a couple of minutes. You know, it's something that that happens very fast. In the Floyd case, this whole thing went on for the better part of 10 minutes. And I do think, you know, again, we're dealing, and as I said with, you know, comparing it to the Eric Garner case, we're dealing with two very reprehensible acts that both deserve a very severe punishment. But But I do think if you're looking at a murder case where the entire thing happens in the and all the decisions are made and everything in the course of two minutes versus a situation where the the murderer has almost 10 minutes to reconsider their actions and sort of pull back and possibly avoid killing the person. I think the sentences in those two cases should probably be different. You know, I think that because Chauvin's knee was on Floyd's neck, for not two minutes, not three minutes, not five minutes, not seven minutes, but but over nine minutes, almost nine and a half minutes, I think that that should result in a significantly longer sentence. Another thing, honestly, that I would factor in with the case is the crowd, because most of the time, most people who commit a second-degree murder don't have a whole chorus of people repeatedly telling them that what they're doing is a horrible idea and trying to get them to do the right thing. You know, Chauvin not only had almost 10 minutes to reconsider, he also had a throng of people sort of trying to, trying, doing everything they could to pull him back from the brink. And Chauvin ignored them. And that, again, sort of, I think, not only makes it much harder to argue that Chauvin didn't mean to kill Floyd, I also think that it makes Chauvin's actions, it really indicates that they were much more cold-blooded and that he really had many opportunities to sort of course correct. And so I think for those reasons, I believe that the, that 30 years is an appropriate sentence. Uh, I think that, that there is a part of me that would say that it ought to be 40 years, uh, but, I, but I am concerned. I'm trying to avoid... I'm trying to avoid supporting a sentence that has the purpose of making a point rather than a sentence that's directly proportionate to the crime. You know, I, I don't believe in giving somebody an overly long sentence to sort of make an example out of them. I don't think that that's how the justice system should operate. But I also think that given the factors that we and others that we've that I've discussed here, I believe that 10 to 15 years would be an overly short sentence for Derek Chauvin. Uh, now, one thing I want to sort of address here is the is the matter of him be, him sort of being kept out of general population. I do not think that Derek Chauvin should be placed in general population with other prisoners because, I mean, th- at that point, it's essentially a death sentence. Um, because cops, really any cop in prison is going to have a massive target on their back. Most cops who are in prison don't have the level of notoriety, the infamy that Chauvin has. And I think, you know, I mean, honestly, as reprehensible as, as scummy of a guy as Chauvin is, 
I don't think we should want somebody to get murdered in prison. And honestly, the fact that prison guards seem to have a very, very hard time preventing it is something that should concern all of us. Uh, so I don't think that he should be put in general population. Uh, but I do think that he should. I do believe that he should serve a 30-year prison sentence. I think that that is the right mix of sort of compassion and uh, and retribution. Um, I also think honestly that Chauvin would be likely to reoffend. And, and I will just also. I just kind of want to address this here. So I, I've I've done Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, not not on a competitive level, but in terms of training for eight years. And there were some sort of, there were some people who were attempting to argue that what Chauvin did to Floyd was not actually a dangerous maneuver and that Floyd must have died entirely as a result of drugs and poor health. Now, th this, there's been some misrepresentation in the course of making this argument. There's been some misrepresentation of what the sort of effect of chokeholds are uh, because Brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, heavily relies on the use of various kind of uh, chokeholds as well as joint locks. Now, it is true that there are relatively safe chokeholds you can do, where you put somebody in the chokehold, they pass out in well under a minute, and they wake up and they're fine. Uh, but those chokeholds, first of all, any pretty much any chokehold is likely to kill somebody if you do it for over nine minutes. Uh, the, as I said, the, these types of what are called blood chokes, where the person uh, passes out and is fine, those that that whole process happens in well under a minute. If you were to maintain that hold for another eight minutes, the person would likely die. Second of all, never in the eight years that I have trained in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu have we ever been instructed to do a hold in which you kneel on somebody's neck for over nine minutes, especially not on concrete. And we certainly have never been, we've certainly never been instructed, never been instructed that that is a safe move. And I don't think that there is a, jiu-jitsu, judo, what have you, I don't think there's any kind of dojo in the country that would tell you that doing that type of chokehold for over nine minutes on concrete is a safe maneuver. Uh, so for those and other reasons, I believe that a 30-year prison sentence would be appropriate. Now, whether Chauvin will get it is another question. The judge has been pretty, was pretty hard on the prosecution during the trial. I think that he was attempting to avoid a mistrial and really wanted to call it down the middle. Uh, but he did, he, he did agree with most of the aggravating factors that the prosecution had recommended. So do I think that Chauvin is getting 30 years? I don't know. I think it's unlikely that he gets, quote unquote, only 10 to 15. Uh, that would be, that would be my take on. Now, we also have the matter of officers Lane, Thau, and uh, Kwung, uh, and I, I apologize here if I'm mispronouncing these names. I've actually, uh, with the exception of Chauvin, I haven't heard any of the officers' names actually spoken, as far as I remember, so I'm guess kind of guessing on pronunciation. I'm pretty sure about how Lane's pronounced, but the, the question now sort of become, is going to become, uh, what should those officers be charged with, and are they going to be convicted? Uh, now, all three of these officers uh, are being charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder. Now, uh, to review here, Thou essentially prevented the bystanders from intervening, uh, because it's very possible that some of them uh, might have tried to. And Lane and Quang uh, were responsible for essentially helping restrain Floyd while Derek Chauvin kneeled on his neck. Now, in practical terms... The aiding and abetting charge 
is going to be potentially difficult to convince a jury of. Now, that does not mean that it is an unfair charge. The, the fact of the matter is that if it had been a group of civilians that they had seen George Floyd sort of uh, trying to use the counterfeit bill, which he may he may not have known was counterfeit, but if, but if a group of civilians had seen somebody trying to use a counterfeit bill and then not cooperating with the cashier, and then this group of civilians had decided, okay, we're going to do a citizen's arrest. And then if in the process of that citizen's arrest, one of these civilians had prevented anyone else from intervening, two of them had helped re- restrain Floyd, and then one of them had kneeled on his neck for over nine minutes, the guy that kneeled on his neck for over nine minutes would have been charged and convicted of murder like Chauvin was, and probably, I would say it's pretty safe to say that the other three people involved would have all been charged with aiding and abetting a murder, uh, because that's generally what you call it when you have two people helping restrain somebody so that another person can kill them, and somebody else preventing anyone else from intervening. Now, I do think that aiding and abetting secondary murder is going to be difficult to sort of stick because I think that the American public is naturally inclined to sort of shift blame off of the other officers on the case because Chauvin was the senior officer. And I think a lot of the American public is going to say, well, only Chauvin was kneeling on his neck. So I think a jury, you're going to have an uphill battle getting a jury to convict on aiding and abetting second-degree murder. But I do think aiding and abetting second-degree murder is an appropriate charge here because all three of those officers knew that what Chauvin was doing, or or, I mean, they, they had to know given the evidence that I've sort of laid out previously, they all knew that what Chauvin was doing was likely to result in Floyd's death. And they all made the decision to nonetheless essentially help him carry it out. Uh, And so I think that in both intent as well as impact, they were, because intent and impact have to be factored in in criminal cases. Uh, I would say that in in both intent as well as impact, they were guilty of aiding and abetting a second-degree murder. Now, I do think that there should probably be some lesser charges that are included as options, uh, that the jury, wherein the jury can choose to convict them on the lesser charges but acquit them of aiding and abetting a secondary murder if the jury feels that the aiding and abetting charge is a stretch. That's something that was done in the Chauvin trial where there were understandably concerns that jurors who thought Chauvin was guilty might still not want to convict him of murder, and that was why manslaughter was included as a possible charge. And I think that even if you feel, as I do, that somebody is guilty of the most serious charge, it's still a good idea to include the option of less, of comparatively less serious charges, if you think that a jury might not convict on the might not convict on the most serious one. Now, I do want to sort of address the issue of Chauvin was the senior officer. So, one of the things that has to be uh, considered here, first of all, is that there is a pretty well-established precedent in case law, including American case law, that if you are ordered to carry out an illegal act, which obviously murdering somebody in that situation is obviously an illegal act, that if you are ordered to carry out an illegal act by essentially your commander, you know, for example, in the military or your head of state, that you are still obligated not to carry out that act. Now, while case law might be a little bit murky, the Minneapolis Police Department's policies are not. So I will quote here from an article in the Washington Post, which was co-written by three individuals. Uh, These individuals are Jeffrey J. Noble, Seth Stoughton, and Jeffrey P. Alpert. Now, it is worth noting that Noble 
what is a long is a long time or sorry what was a longtime member of the Irvine California Police Department and in that capacity he actually had to use deadly force so this article was co-written by a cop but I want to read I want to quote here quote many modern police agencies including the Minneapolis Police Department, have adopted peer intervention policies that require officers to step in when they see a colleague doing something they shouldn't. So in this particular case, even under the Minneapolis Police Department's policies, these three other officers had an obligation to, if necessary, basically pull Chauvin off of Floyd when they saw that he was murdering him. Uh, and, in, and in one key way, actually, the sort of following orders defense would potentially be even harder to make for these officers than it would have been in the case of actually of Nazi Germany. Because in Nazi Germany, there was a military draft. So an army officer, while obviously the Nuremberg defense of only following orders was a terrible defense and it didn't work and it shouldn't have worked, in at least in that case, the uh, the soldiers could potentially argue that they had been drafted and they did not have the option of essentially refusing uh, refusing to serve or quitting the military once they saw the holocaust happening in the case of the united states and policing however there is no police draft so these three other officers would have been well within their rights to simply quit on the spot if they felt that they had to either uh that they had to either disobey a senior officer or be accessories to murder. They chose not to do so, and so I do think there has to be a fairly stiff penalty for what they did. But it, obviously, it doesn't need to be as severe as what Derek Chauvin did. But we we do we do have to take a hard line against officers who, as the charge says, aid and abet other officers in criminal behavior. I would like to add one final point. If there was any doubt left that Derek Chauvin intended for Floyd to die or did not care if Floyd died, then I think the fact that when you have an off-duty firefighter basically coming up and saying, can I please just try to help him? Can I please just try to save his life? And you have the cop, Derek Chauvin, that's kneeling on Floyd's neck, refusing. I think that the trying to reduce this case to simple manslaughter simply doesn't cut it. And I will add that with the question, with the issue of the fact that one of the officers on the case was a rookie that they had just started, we don't apply that excuse to gang killings to avoid sending somebody to prison. So, for example, if somebody's very young and they have just joined a gang and they and they are basically asked to help participate in a murder for a gang initiation, we don't say, oh, well, they're very young and they just started out and they were under pressure from the people sort of higher up than them in the pecking order, so we don't need to send them to prison. You know, that's not how our justice system works. And while I'm not in favor of giving harsher sentences to cops than I am for civilians, I don't think that cops should get lighter sentences because they work for the government. So that concludes this episode of the podcast. I will see you guys next time for episode three.